My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the host of the Bitcoin Fixes This podcast and the author of the new book, Fiat Ruins Everything. To kick off the fourth year of the Renaissance of Men, please welcome Jimmy Song. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I have to tell you that something in our world is very, very wrong. We see it in the decay of our architecture, our music, our families, our governments, our workplaces, and our values. It's a pervasive rotting or a spiritual and moral shrinking. We have more stuff than ever, but it seems like there's less substance to our stuff every year. Art is losing its meaning. Food is losing its nutrition. Families are losing their cohesion. Religion is losing its spine. And our nation is losing its integrity. On the surface, it might not seem like these things are related, but we feel in our hearts the deeper truth that everything is interconnected. The question is, how? What is the poison leaking into the river, running through all of it? Could there even be one? From a Christian perspective, obviously the answer is yes, sin. But I'm not sure that answer is sufficient. Sin is everywhere in everyone all the time. There was sin when the great civilization of the West was built. Sinners built it. So why is the West only now rotting so quickly, so thoroughly, and so insidiously? Could there be something else to it? Some novel historical circumstance? Could there be a new substance other than sin, or perhaps a new kind of sin, leaking into our spiritual river and poisoning the entire land? I propose that the answer is yes. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Jimmy Song, and he's the host of the Bitcoin Fixes This podcast, plus the author of the excellent new book, Fiat Ruins Everything. The title says it all. Fiat currency ruins everything. It is the novel poison that has been leaking into our societal river over the past 50 to 100 years, from the founding of the Federal Reserve to the abandonment of the gold standard leading to different forms of decay in countless different ways. When Jimmy says fiat ruins everything, he means it. Here's a short list of the things his book demonstrates that fiat is currently ruining. Morality, belief, corporations, charity, college, science, art, knowledge, and more. How does fiat do this? By corrupting our incentives. A society flush with money printer cash has people chasing increasingly worthless fast money dollars rather than the slow value produced by a lifetime of godly, meaningful labor. Put another way, today we hustle rather than delivering value. We court power rather than virtue. We chase fame and status rather than manly skill. All to get next to the source of softening money, which will soon turn to powder in our hands at the rate of about 7% per year. Don't believe me? Go to the supermarket or gas pump. Now, I know that all of you aren't into Bitcoin, but Fiat Ruins Everything isn't a Bitcoin book. Instead, it's a book about moral virtue and the loss of it. Jimmy doesn't use his pages to formally prove the viability of a solution, 
Instead, he diagnoses a problem with compelling clarity and insight. As I've said many times before, we as men must understand what's happening to the world around us to provide for our families and protect our legacy. And while you might not be convinced of Bitcoin yet, I think Jimmy's book is a must-read, if only so you can be convinced of the problem that Bitcoin fixes. And if, when you read it, you can come up with a better solution, I'd love to hear it. In our conversation, Jimmy and I discussed the origins of his book, Rent-Seeking and the Cantillon Effect, Stealth Taxes and Positive Rights, Credentialism and Safety Culture, Social Safety Nets and Childbearing, The Degradation of Art, and finally, The Wizard of Oz Conspiracy. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. You can help this podcast grow by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating on Spotify, and sharing this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. Also, in case you missed it, the Renaissance of Men is also on YouTube. Though the intro monologue is shorter, you can watch each episode the Friday night after the audio version comes out. Go to youtube.com slash at men to subscribe and hit the bell icon to get notified when I release full interviews and clips. Coming up on Friday, November 11th, I'm excited to announce the third edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series featuring a stellar lineup of speakers targeted specifically for young men. In this event, we'll have David Hammond talking about dedication, Rob from The Grounded Athlete talking about vision, Arthur Dane from Blood and Rain talking about focus, Zach from Kaz TV talking about brotherhood, Jonathan West from the Being Husband podcast talking about humility, and John and Joe from the Iron Disciples talking about discipline. Tickets are available now at the link in the show notes. I understand how difficult it can be for young men today to find godly, powerful sources of wisdom. Fat and weak pastors abound. So until we can raise up a strong generation of ordained Christian leaders, it's on us to band together as men and find a way forward. I'm so proud of these guys for stepping up to the plate and volunteering to share their thoughts with you. Again, join us on Saturday, November 11th for a full-day event, the third edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series. As always, the Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, providers of fine hand-roasted coffee beans from Pastor Brandon Lansdowne and his family in Springfield, Missouri. I passed a major milestone recently. I made my 100th cup of pour-over coffee. So stick around during this episode for a brief overview of what I've learned and more reasons why you need to be buying Reformation for your daily caffeination. And before we begin, a quick thanks to Pastor Anthony Stafford, Scott and Cheryl Hulsapple, AJ Stafford, Nate Roberts, Pastor Benny Stiltner, Dr. Joe Bova, and the entire community at Electric City Baptist Church in Schenectady, New York for an outstanding experience at the Man Up Conference. I had an incredible time speaking and sharing fellowship with that entire community, and it was by far one of the most energizing men's events I've attended. I'm a big fan of what Pastor Anthony has got going on at ECBC, and the energy there is unlike any other church I've been to. So if you're in the Schenectady area and you're looking for a strong church to belong to, make ECBC your place. And I'm looking forward to speaking there again next year. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, kicking off the fourth year of the Renaissance of Men, a Christian husband and father, and the author of Fiat Ruins Everything, Jimmy Song. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so I just uh, finished up your book, Fiat Ruins Everything, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yes, there we go. We've both got our, we've both got our copies of it. Um, and so I, I learned a lot from the book. I, I really appreciated how thoroughly you took apart the pervasive influence of, of uh, 
fiat on our culture. But let's let's take a step back first before we start getting into that. What inspired you to write to write the book in the first place? Like, why did you say, okay, I need to write, I, I need to cover this topic in in this depth? Yeah, I I don't know if there was like a specific thing that inspired me per se. I I mean, I've I've been doing um, Bitcoin fixes this as a podcast for a while, and I I knew that this was, um, you know, just you can examine pretty much everything, and something comes back to fiat money. Yeah. And what I what I realized doing that podcast was so much of uh, what Bitcoin fixes isn't that Bitcoin is necessarily injecting holy water into something, right? Like right. that's not what's happening. What's happening is that you remove the incentives of fiat money and suddenly everything starts working correctly. Mm. It's, um, you could sort of liken it to like, uh, you know, like your diet or something like that. You, you're, you're eating something that's really, really bad for you. Say you're gluten intolerant and you're eating gluten all the time. You could add all kinds of good stuff to that gluten. You're still going to be sick because it's it's just very um, very bad for you, and you're you're allergic to it. So uh, you know the the title "Fiat Ruins Everything" comes from that. Um, as far as the actual book, I uh, started writing articles for Bitcoin Magazine after taking David Perel's course. He wrote the forward for my book. Um, he teaches a class online um, <clears throat> uh, called "Rite of Passage," and um, I've been friends with him for a few years, and I decided finally to go ahead and take his class, uh, you know, last year. Um, and I, I took it. I felt really empowered to write a lot of stuff. I wrote a lot of stuff, and I continued writing more stuff. And eventually, it became this book. Um, so it wasn't like a grand plan or anything or uh, some spark of inspiration or any anything like, um, you know, uh, burning bush level, like. <laughs> kind of inspiration or anything like that. It, it's just something that I wanted to do. I thought it would be interesting and I thought there'd be an audience for it. And so, uh, not, I'm, I'm happy to find that there is an audience. Yeah. So when you, when you started sort of taking apart the thesis that the, the corrupting influence, was there, was there a place like a, a first point of entry that you began exploring or that was most accessible to you? Um, I, I think the first place that I naturally went, I think, in this series of articles was about altcoins. And yeah. it's a, it's kind of a weird place to think that you're going to get a lot of, out of it. But the thing about studying altcoins is that you realize very quickly a lot of the pl- people that are in altcoins learn their trade from fiat money. <laughs> like they they learned how to do a lot of the sort of weird uh, Cantalon games and uh, just like marketing tricks and stuff like that. They, they got it from fiat money. It's, yeah. it's not anything new. Um, so th- that, that was sort of like the first uh, se- series of articles I wrote. It, w- it was about altcoins. It was about VCs and stuff like that. And that made it into part six of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the more I thought about it, the more I wrote, uh, the more I realized like, okay, they, they, it's not just that. There's a lot of other places Um you know, not just financial stuff, but uh, all kinds of stuff that is just completely infected by the presence of a money printer. Oh, so so it was uh, it was investigating the altcoin phenomenon, seeing how it was tied to fiat. That was the gateway into the corruption of fiat a- across the culture. Because you went from like science and art and college mm-hmm. and knowledge, like you covered a lot of different. T- I actually, I actually f- felt a little bit. Uh, the situation felt a little dire by the end of the, of the book with all the different areas <laughs> that you touched on. I was like, oh, I need to go stack some more today. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't necessarily like all coins led to that. It, yes. It's just I got more curious, and that that definitely played a role. Okay, so it was like a like an intellectual journey, almost in a way to kind of think mm-hmm. through the the incentives. So where did you? go from there and i, I want to get to the cantillon mm-hmm. f- effect as well because i mm-hmm. think it was mm-hmm. it was the way that you laid out the moral case against the money printer as creating this phenomenon of rent seeking that really shifted mm-hmm. the way that i f- i think about the world now i guess you might say <laughs> yeah uh the the entire edifice of rent seeking is is something that i've been thinking about for a while mm-hmm. now and i think it was um I, I I didn't really think about what that was. I, I I think I've had a sense most of my life that there's a lot of people that aren't doing that much work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you work anywhere, right, like any company, you you kind of know who those people are, yeah. right? Like yeah. you you've seen them. Uh, they they um, are usually in some sort of gatekeeping function or something like that, where they they have to rubber stamp something in order for you to get to do what you think would be actually good for the company that you're working for or something like that. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really have a word for it until until I got to Bitcoin and I started studying some of this stuff, um, particularly around, you know, the mechanics of fiat money and where where does all that money go and how, how is that money distributed and, and so on. And I realized like that phenomenon that I'd been feeling all my life working at different companies and whatnot and and the you know the inefficiency of the fiat system they they were completely like it, it sort of like brought the two puzzle pieces together for me and that's that's where um i i i started to study how a lot of this works and once you follow the money even a little bit you realize oh this is where it goes this is where you know things fall apart and things um become hyper inefficient and People suspend reality and make money doing nothing. Like that. That. That's where this all. Leads. So where does the where does the term rent seeking come from? Because I, I kind of did get a little bit hung up on the on the etymology of that term at first. Of course, mm-hmm. as as you explained explored the thesis throughout the book, I came to have a better, clearer understanding. But I was like, what does it actually literally mean to rent seek? <laughs> I think uh, the the term comes from sort of like some owner of land that is sort of has uh, sort of a particular position. Um, it's not that their land itself is valuable, but it's like sort of like a connecting piece or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, say you, uh, you know, you, you're, you own a part of a road and you like put up a toll there, mm-hmm. um, that would be kind of rent seeking. Right? Oh. Using that to sort of like, uh, you're, you're causing a lot of friction in, in, that, in that process, right? So, um, it's a, it's a common phenomenon that happens and it's, uh, you know, throughout history, you know, a lot, a lot of Kings like charge taxes all over the place where they could find sort of these like economic choke points and governments do the same thing today, right? Like they, they'll find something that, um, that everyone is using and essentially put up a toll there and say, okay, we're, we're collecting here from now on. Um, but that, that's that's what that phenomenon is and uh, and has been. It, it's uh, like if you look at economic literature, there, there's a significant usage of that. I think maybe starting with um, with the oil boom and stuff like that. There's a, there's a lot of uh, sort of quote unquote rent seeking. Uh, like uh, like Saudi Arabia was a dirt poor country mm-hmm. right, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, but you know as they 
they realize, okay, we're sitting on all of this stuff. Um, they didn't provide any of the technology. They didn't provide any of the market for for this oil. But uh, but you know they they got a they they got to collect a lot of money on it because it it was so abundant and so available and so on. Um, so it, in a sense, it's uh, it's by controlling a particular resource, you you have the ability to tax a transaction in some way, shape, or form, and that's that's essentially what rent seeking is. And uh, uh, because of the way laws work and permission works, and pretty much any society, um, you can set up for yourself rent seeking positions. And, you know, like in any efficient economy, those things go away very quickly, as soon as you realize, like, they're not adding value. But in a fiat money system, those things tend to stay and sort of rot the entire system. Got it. Okay. So that made a lot of sense. Um, over time, the, the nature, the nature of the term, especially because I remember when I was in college, the really clear thrust was to get into investment banking, right? Or a consulting <laughs> firm. And I remember being subject to that pressure, like, you know, undergraduates like, oh yeah, no, we're all going to work for Arthur Anderson and we're going to work hundred hour weeks for a couple of years. And it's like, I, I felt that there was something lacking from that or go into investment banking. And when you laid out that these yeah. are some, yeah, please go ahead. Those are rent seeking positions by nature. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I had that same pressure, I think coming out of college too, was, you know, like even like the hardcore engineers, right? The the guys that did double E or um, you know mechanical engineering or material sciences engineering or whatever, they were all like going and interview with these like consulting firms and, and like try try to get into that management consulting stuff. And honestly, like what management consulting is is largely trying to find out where the rent seekers are and trying to eliminate their jobs. <laughs> That's what it ends up being. Yes. And it's kind of funny because you, you, you talk to any management consultant and I have a lot of friends that went into that uh, area and they'll tell you like, Oh yeah, I consulted for this company with 20,000 employees or whatever. Yeah. You could cut half of them. Yeah. Like no problem. Yeah. You could, you could just cut half of them. Nothing would happen to the company. Um, and we, we kind of saw that play out in real time, <laughs> like Twitter with, with Elon Musk, he yeah. literally just eliminated ninety percent. What what were they doing? Right, like right. what what did they do anything of value? Because the site runs very similarly. I mean, politically, maybe it's it's changed, but that's that's not like because of the ninety percent of the people that left. Uh, so you know, there 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 was that uh, like the far more ambitious people ended up going to investment banking, of course, and the, that is. Uh, serious rent seeking. Uh, you know, you you can get like hundred x leverage on some of these trades, um, and that's what they did to make a lot of money. And uh, you know, anytime you hear the word leverage, you should think loan. Like some somebody is borrowing a lot of money, and where where does that loan come from in a fiat economy? That's it's it's just printed into existence. So uh, investment banks have. Uh, sick amount of leverage available to them and it's why they're so rich and yeah sadly that that's uh that that's where people the most talented people go and not to say nuclear engineering figuring out how to get like a nuclear jet engine that could you know uh probably fly around the world multiple times without refueling right like mm. that, that would be something crazy but uh, it's possible because that's how energy dense nuclear um, power is. But we haven't progressed at all on that since maybe the 60s. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of the state of the things right uh, how things are right now.
Yeah, you get into that as well with science and, and technology and how rent seeking feeds in. Okay, so so let's let's go back to the Cantillon effect then, because I have a lot of people who listen to my podcast who are into Bitcoin. I would like more of you to be into Bitcoin. But 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 I what I thought was the, the dynamics that you that you laid out that was very helpful was understanding the Cantillon effect and how things spread outwards from there to create mm. this basically world of rent seekers. So let's let's start with the Fed and the Cantillon effect to sort of set the stage for how that sh- how rent seeking shows up in our world today. Yeah, so um, the Cantillon effect is uh, named after Richard Cantillon, and he was an Irish-French economist from about early 18th century. So the Bank of England was created in uh, 1697, I think. So he was in that first generation of people that uh, that witnessed what a central bank does, right, and how it affects the economy and so on. So he wrote a bunch of stuff about his observations on what happened with the Bank of England. And one of uh, one of the things that he pointed out was, OK, um, the people that get to spend the money first get a lot of the benefits, right? The people that spend it last don't get any of the benefits. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote a bunch of papers re, uh, uh, related to that. Uh, among other things, he noted that... Um, Manufacturing, because of the Cantillon effect of the British pound and it being the sort of the world reserve currency at that point, uh, meant that uh, all of the manufacturing jobs left England because <laughs> labor was always cheaper somewhere else. And uh, and that that's where all of these middle class manufacturing jobs ended up going to. Mm-hmm. And um, that's obviously something that we see in the U.S. today, especially since 1971. Pretty much every manufacturing job has left. Um, I mean, there, there's maybe like United Auto Workers with automobiles and so on, but they had to fight tooth and nail to yeah. get that. And there are multiple government subsidies that that make that possible, uh, especially in the South and so on, where um, you know these manufacturing jobs are essentially saved through government intervention. Uh, but that that's the the essence of the Cantillon effect is that the people that get to spend it first get a lot of the benefits because they get to spend it before the uh, the inflation is known to everybody else. Mm-hmm. If you if you print a couple trillion dollars, um, the first spenders of that money get the benefits. Uh, the very last spenders, you know, it's it's the same as any other money that they already have. So um, yeah, they're they're the ones that get screwed over, whereas the first people. Um, particularly government and pretty much anyone that has access to a lot of loans, uh, they're they're the ones that benefit. Yeah. So if a, a dollar comes out of the money printer, the person standing right there gets a dollar. And by the time it works its way through the economy, comparatively, it's 99 cents or 97 cents or 90 cents. And so the dollar that gets printed is worth less and less the further it gets from the printer itself. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, and you, you kind of saw this dynamic during the pandemic uh, because we had a lot of money that was injected almost directly into the economy in the form of PPP loans and uh, stimmy checks. So uh, people in the U.S., you know, like I, I, I know people uh, that were working at like really, um, you know, high end car dealerships and stuff, and they they'd see someone come in with like one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Hey, give give me a car, right? Like I, I just I, I just want it. Th- that was the Cantillon effect in action. They, they were trying to spend it into the economy before everything inflated. And in a sense, they did because the inflation came like a year and a half later, 
when all of the prices of everything actually rose up to meet that. But before that happened, you had you had this sort of window where if you had access to this money, then you could go spend it at par before the pre-inflation. Now, afterwards, after the inflation happened, then, you know, like it, it's sort of par for everybody. It's the same for everybody. But the people that got to spend it first, they they got a lot of the benefit. Um, and there, uh, and if you go to a lot of other countries, you you notice that the Cantillon effect um, was still sort of like evening, uh, like still in process, right? Like you you had other countries that were experiencing inflation, uh, and in a sense, like uh, as you get disruption in uh, the dollar, you get disruptions in every other currency because they use it as their reserve currency, um, and that inflation hadn't. Uh, you know, necessarily occurred yet. So for a lot of U.S. travelers, it's uh, it's pre- pretty cheap to go abroad and spend things. And that uh, and in a sense, if you're a U.S. citizen or someone that gets paid in the dollar, you're able to benefit from the Cantillon effect. Uh, whereas, you know, somebody that doesn't get paid in the dollar or ha- transacts in it at the very end of the chain. And the example I, I give in the book is of somebody in North Korea Um where their black markets are, uh, you know, run on foreign currency, they don't use local currency. And uh, of the foreign currencies that are used, the U.S. dollar is the most desirable. Mm. Um, and for them, prices have gone up significantly. And they're getting sort of screwed out uh, on the Cantillon effect as a result of all the money printing that happened starting in 2020. Men, I have great news. My Renaissance Mentorship Program is open once again. Over the past year, I've worked with high-performing and dedicated men, and I'm thrilled with their results, and they are too. My mentorship page has been massively revamped to feature them and highlight the best aspects of the program, and you can go to renofmen.com mentorship to see for yourself. This program is set to deliver one thing for you, that you end in a very different place than where you began. If that sounds a bit vague, there's a reason. I'm not promising you six-pack abs or a six-figure savings account, though if you want those things, that's great. We can work on them too. What I'm promising instead is that if you're stuck, there's a set of problems in your life that all begin in the same place. You. The way you think, how you feel, plus habits and beliefs about yourself and your story that you've never questioned. Those thoughts, feelings, habits, and mistaken beliefs have piled up to deliver you into the moment you're in right now. And if you're like most men, they're way too much to sort out on your own. If you go looking in that messy basement, you don't know what you'll find. It's a fear that plagues most men, not what we know about ourselves, but what we don't. Which is why I'm there, to walk through those spaces with you. The mentorship includes many of my favorite frameworks you can't find anywhere else, including position, trajectory, momentum, the narrow passage, the three reconciliations, and the linkage between depression and anger plus the men's life map, which is the foundation of it all. But above and beyond all the conceptual stuff, you get me to walk with you daily to help you become the man your family, household, community, and world desperately needs. And the best part is, there are now three options for how we can do that, including an option for men with lower budgets, but no lack of commitment and heart, because it's my job to get you unstuck, facing in the right direction, and moving towards the man you want to be which is why it's not therapy or coaching, it's mentorship. You can find more information at renofben.com mentorship, including testimonials from men like you and details about the program. 
And if you're curious about what my mentorship can do for you, register for a free discovery call and together we'll find that out. Again, go to renofmen.com mentorship for more. Brother, you've been going it alone for too long. It's time for companionship, brotherhood, and my Renaissance mentorship. So I think a lot of people would be pretty pretty surprised to hear about the way that this, the the Cantillon effect, the way that the money printer affects the world globally. By the way, as you're giving these answers, I'm thinking of all these different chapters that you have in the book. It makes me just want to dive into the content, you know, particularly around the dollar hegemony. Like it's such a complicated web of topics that you tackled in a systemic way. But I think people would be really surprised to hear that the way that this actually does benefit Americans when Americans are always the ones where now we're thinking about inflation. It's like, well, no, we actually are, we're getting the better end of the deal comparatively. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I point out in the book that, uh, you know, with the dollar, uh, yeah, I mean, Americans do uh, suffer from inflation. That 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 much is yeah. fact. There, uh, if you look at the M two money supply from 1959 to 2023, it's gone from 289 billion to 21 trillion and change, something like that. And uh, and that that's about a 70 x increase in the M two money supply. And if you annualize that, that ends up being about seven percent a year. So your money is getting debased at seven percent a year. Um, but, uh, you know, the, that's actually on the good end. If you if oh. you uh, do the global M2 and weigh it by, uh, you know, the supply of every currency and so on, you add the yen in there, the yuan in there, the rem, uh, and the, you know, the euro in there and all these others. And you, you do the global M2 ends up being uh, more like 14% on a worldwide basis. Um, And that's something that you can go learn from Safe Dean's new book, uh, Principles of Economics. Uh, So for for the 7% that the U.S. has, there's there's somebody out there with like 21%. That's, you know, that's like the real debasement. So in a sense, the U.S. uh, citizens, um, you know, they they have it bad. I I think 7% a year is still pretty terrible. Uh, but the people in the developing world, it's way, way worse. And it's on a continuous basis. And uh, it does fits and starts. And you get hyperinflation um, like you have in Lebanon like, right now or in Argentina. Um, but that, that's, uh, you know, your, your wealth is being taken away from you on, on an almost constant basis. But yeah, U.S., not nearly as bad. And you, you can clearly see it when you go travel. I mean, I... I uh, I spent the last year traveling with my family, and um, and I can tell you that uh, that the U.S. was the most expensive out of all the places we visited. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you know not not something that a lot of people realize yet because uh, they they don't know the prices of things in Singapore or uh, Tokyo or whatever. But the U.S. is actually the most expensive at the moment, and this is this is a sign of the Cantillon effect at play. Yeah, so I, I traveled quite a bit between 2016 and 2020, like even before they really ramped up the money printer to the level it's at right now. And that was always the thing. People always talked about wanting to travel to the US. I mean, in addition to the fact the United States is huge, and you can't really see the whole country like you can a Singapore or a Japan. But that aside, even visiting the US, it was cost prohibitive for most people to even think about visiting versus in other countries. My American dollars would go quite far, depending, depending on where. Like less far in Japan than and less far in Australia, but you know, go to a place like China, you know, or India all day. 
<laughs> well, I mean, now nowadays, like even Japan and Australia and New Zealand, like th- those are actually very affordable places because yeah. the dollar is doing so well. I, I think I saw earlier today it was like one fifty yen to a dollar or something like that. Oh wow! Uh, which which is um, you know, I mean, for a long time there it was about a hundred, um, and even more recently it was like one twenty, one thirty, or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. It's uh like the the fact is there and uh and it's if not for the Bank of Japan sort of defending their currency, um I, I'm sure it would be even higher than 150. Uh but that that's the these are the games at play and these are these are um how the world runs. It's all based on central banks and money printing and uh the various financial games they all play to pull the wool over our eyes about what's actually going on. Can we? I want to take a just a brief detour into the the notion of the woke and the social justice warriors in America who are so committed to justice and equality, quote unquote. It's like if you are really as committed to that, maybe you take a look at the central banks and see what's really going on there. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and uh, and it's it's sad because for them, monetary justice is not even on their radar at all. Right, right? like uh, and how how it works. Uh, for many of them, it's uh, it's sort of like this positive right mindset, um, which I didn't write about in the book, but um, but I can explain uh, mm-hmm. here. The idea of positive rights is that um, you force other people to do something for you. So the right to health care is a positive right because without doctors or nurses performing that service, it's it's not something that can be provided for you, right? Uh, whereas like the right to free speech, it you know, there, there's no service that you're demanding from somebody else. Th- those are what you would call negative rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as you have positive rights, uh, you require some sort of money printer or some authoritarianism in order to make happen. So uh, a lot of the things that the left uh, woke people want are positive rights. And they almost always end up with some sort of enslavement of a subset of people or some rampant money printing to make it work. And um, unfortunately, because of that dynamic where uh, a lot of the positive rights that they want, right, right to housing or right to healthcare or whatever, come from that uh, Cantillon effect, the the fiat money um, that's printed on their behalf, that, that mechanism, they they've almost purposefully uh, neglected the um, the the actual mechanics or the moral culpability that they share in pushing those policies. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is great. This allows me to kind of transition in some of the content of the book itself around mm-hmm. how government has been using to the money printer to fund the growth of entitlement programs. Because that is very up for a lot of people right now. So let's let's start there with the first pervasive effect of of the money printer of enabling this kind of giant, this giant government situation we we find ourselves in. Yeah, I, the the thing about being able to print money is that it's a stealth tax. It's a it's a uh, inflation is a tax without any transparency, any legislation, or any uh, uh, any sort of. Um, uh, responsibility taken by anybody right it's it's something that as you get inflation uh every government bureaucrat starts blaming anything but the actual thing that caused it which is the actual money printing so mm-hmm. you've seen uh i, I think safety had like a whole bunch of tweets on like the crazy things that people are blaming inflation for it's like beyonce caused inflation by you know like having too many shows or 
like just absolutely yeah. ridiculous stuff. Um, you know, in in uh, Canada, Trudeau is blaming grocery stores for being greedy. It's like, no, that's just the economics, right? Like you you you're you're forced to raise the prices when the cost of the components goes up and so on. But but th this is the game that uh, every um, politician can play uh, is is blame inflation on something else. So it becomes this very convenient tax that you can always sort of like dip your hand into whenever you need money. And using that money, you can pro promise lots of free stuff. And uh, as you stated before, um, the the thing that a lot of people like is like free money, right? Like, and this is essentially what entitlements are. And these are the epitome of positive rights. It's a right to healthcare past a certain age or a right to have uh, you know universal basic income after a certain age or something like that. You might call it some sort of insurance or something, but really it's it's money being printed out thin air for your benefit. And you might have other taxpayers and whatever, and there's uh, certainly like lots of liability on behalf of the government to provide a lot of this stuff. But it's it's all just money printed out of thin air to um, for politicians to win votes of one type or another, and that that's. What they've done is they've bribed the populace into voting for them by promising them free things. And that's the dynamic that happens as you as you have this stealth taxation. Now, if you didn't have this option of stealth taxation like we did in the gold standard, government tends to be much more limited because you have to create an ex explicit tax every time you want to fund the program. So if you wanted to uh, give universal basic income like Andrew Yang wants to do or whatever, then you would actually have to go and tax somebody else to fund that. And as soon as you start taxing people, they get up in a revolt, right? And th this is the cause of a lot of revolutions is explicit taxation. Uh, and that that's that's the this is why politicians have sort of shied away from it. But because of the presence of this stealth taxation through central bank monetary policy, um, this is the direction that most of them have gone in. And you get a lot of these entitlements that come come into play, uh, a, lot, a lot of sort of vote buying and things like that. And then, you know, it creates bureaucratic apparatuses all over the place and it, uh, it favors certain constituents and so on. And you kind of get the mess that we have now. We could, we could get into a lot of the other things that this affects, but on a first order basis, it's, uh, let's give free stuff to people that are going to vote for me. That's the dynamic at play here. Yeah. Yes. So let's unpack the term stealth tax. Like why, why is, I know the answer to the question, but why is money printing a stealth, a stealth tax for people that are new to this topic set? Yeah. So, uh, it's a stealth tax because there's no, you know, IRS coming to collect your money for inflation, right? The, the collection doesn't happen on the front end. It's actually more on the back end as you pay for goods and services. So um, as you uh, go and shop for steak, for example, um, you know, how, how much is it right now versus three years ago? Um, mm. I know like at the beginning of the pandemic, I was able to get like a prime ribeye uh, at like, you know, $10 a pound. Now it's mm. more like 18 or 19 a pound, right? Like it's yeah. that, that that's clearly inflation right there. It's a taxation through diluting the dollar. So um, if, you, if you think about explicit ta taxation, you can think of that as sort of taking away from the numerator. You, you have 
some numerator, right? Like this is the amount of money you have. And the denominator is all the amount of money that exists. So you have some fraction of all money that exists. Explicit taxation is taking money from the numerator. Implicit taxation is adding money to the denominator. So either way, your 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 uh, the worth that you uh, you've accumulated is is going away. But the implicit taxation is much more subtle because you you don't see your number go down, right? Like there's no government saying, "All right, I'm going to take half of your money uh, right away from your bank account." It's we're just going to double, you know, like increase the amount of M2 money available by 30% or something like that. And next thing you know, everything just costs more. And uh, and the government has some plausible deniability around that. So it's stealth in that way, um, but it's taxation because what you have is being taken away from you um, sort of without your consent. Yeah, that that picture once that came in once that came into focus, the way that inflation really robs us of the value of our money in a way that explicit tax actually just takes your money from you, and implicit tax takes away the value of your money, and it's 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 the same effect through a couple of different doors. Yeah, and it's it, it's just complicated enough and not taught <laughs> in school enough that most people have like very little idea of what's actually going on. Yeah, they they feel the impact and they watch on the news as as inflation is discussed not to the degree that it's 7% per year but that's what you that's what you end up feeling and yet they can obscure they can obscure the source of it because no one is ever allowed to really look at don't, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain is the rule <laughs> with the fed yeah uh, that that whole uh you you just referenced the wizard of oz um there there's mm. a whole interesting thing about how that's um that's actually the story of the end of the gold standard and the Emerald City is uh, the greenback and, you know, the yellow brick road is the gold standard. Um, the cowardly lion are politicians and the, uh, the scarecrow are farmers and uh, the, the tin man are industrialists. It's, it's like a whole allegory about that era and bringing in the Federal Reserve and so on. So it's that that's a whole rabbit hole that you can go down and it. <laughs> But the Wizard of Oz is actually a commentary on the monetary system that we have. I, I okay. Let's let's explore that for a minute, if uh -huh. if we if we can. So I had I had heard something like that. I don't know that I ever been all the way down the rabbit hole, but just kind of unpack that because I think I'll have everyone's yeah, yeah. attention. So, so the idea is that uh, you know you have this Wizard of Oz, right? That's great and powerful, and turns out to be this guy behind the curtain that's like, uh, you know pulling a couple of levers that that's that's the federal reserve that's that's uh that's it's it's literally somebody yeah. like pulling a couple of levers and just hoping something happens and it's the emerald city because it's the greenback the dollar uh you know the green is that color and the yellow brick road is the gold standard and sort of like the end of the gold standard uh ending at the um the emerald city and uh and dorothy is like Going with uh, you know these political constituents that uh, that ultimately all um, you know gave in to the Federal Reserve. This these are like the farmers um, at the time. There was uh, you know before that it was uh, the gold bugs and silver bugs. They tried to introduce bimetallism and uh, and that that was a big monetary sort of conflict that a lot of farmers were engaged in. And in a sense, they they 
didn't have a brain, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that was the thing. Uh, then you had, you, had, you had the industrialists uh, who were, you know, the Rockefellers and the robber barons, right? The U.S. Steel, the J.P. Morgans and all, all, all of those people. Um, they, uh, if you read Creature from Jekyll Island, you find out mm-hmm. like they're the ones that were actually responsible for the establishment of the uh, Federal Reserve. And, you know, they're the ones without a heart, right? Like they <laughs> just have no compassion for anybody else, just... You know, they're very, very selfish in that way. And then the cowardly lion, these were the politicians. Uh, and of course, they had no courage. So they, they just like let everything through because in a sense, they felt threatened by uh, by by all of these other constituents. And they, that led to the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And yeah, I mean, that, that that's the interpretation that I heard. I, I've heard, and I, I think it's fairly accurate. Like, if mm. you think about that era and the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and all the constituencies that came together to essentially create that. Uh, but yeah, it, do, it does end up with a man behind the curtain that does sort of like magic behind the scenes and nobody, nobody um, sort of like sees it for what it is unless like you peek. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's what that's about. I will definitely have to find some links. I had, I had heard that a while ago, but I, I, I had forgotten what the allegory was. I, that sounds, that sounds right to me. I'm curious. Like what the ruby, I mean, it would all have symbolism. Like what's the wicked witch of the West and the East and the Ruby slippers. I'm almost, it almost means something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in the book it was like white slippers or something like that. Oh, okay. And it, 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 I, I think for, you know, because of technicolor and, uh, you know, the oh. contrast that the filmmakers wanted, they, they made it into Ruby or something like that. Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of symbolism. There's like a whole 50 page paper going into the details about what happened <laughs> and so on, uh, which I, I think I read at one point and that that's where I'm, I've gotten most of it. So. So okay, so let's so we've got the we've got the the Cantillon effect, we've got stealth taxes, and let's plug rent seeking into this because I think those are the three big pieces. You have the can so let, let, let's put the rent seeking framework into that. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when you have the Cantillon effect uh, and you you have this ability to money print, you have politicians that are essentially handing out free stuff to people. You you. Um, uh, you inevitably get a lot of that money that's supposed to go to the people needing some sort of like bureaucratic state to, you know, distribute it or whatever, um, whatever benefit it might be. Now, it, it could be like, uh, you know, during the New Deal, for example, there are all sorts of like work programs and things like that. There were, um, you know, di- different dams being built, capital projects, whatever. Uh, and th- that's money being printed. That's money c- coming into existence to uh, fund all of that stuff. And uh, and that requires some sort of bureaucratic state, right? Like you got to distribute it somehow. Somebody has to be in the middle somewhere. And right there is when rent seeking starts uh, is you have somebody sitting in the middle, some sort of bureaucrat that's in charge of distributing the money or spending the money in a particular way to achieve some end. And, uh, and if you think about the position of the bureaucrat, they're spending somebody else's money for somebody else's benefit. Now, if you're, if you're spending your own money for your own benefit, you're going to be very careful about the value that you're getting and the money that you're spending. If you're spending somebody else's money for your benefit, you're going to get the best thing that you can possibly get because it's not your money. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're spending your own money for somebody else's benefit and you're a cheapskate, you're probably going to like just get the cheapest thing out there, right? Because it's your money. But if you're spending somebody else's money for somebody else's benefit, you have no motive to care about anything. And uh, and government jobs being how they are, especially nowadays, um, you basically have no motivation to do all any of that. So what ends up happening is that they do figure out ways to get benefit themselves. So this is where cronyism, bribery, um, sort of corruption come in, is that if you are a bureaucrat that's spending somebody else's money for somebody else's benefit, you often try to find ways to get kickbacks or something like that. And that that could be explicitly corrupt, but more likely, it's going to be just based on your ideology. All right, I'm going to push my ideology on this particular thing. And so I'm going to um, make sure that the that even if I'm not benefiting, maybe my friends and family are benefiting or my group uh, or the people that I represent or people that are in my in-group, uh, that they get a benefit. So becomes this sort of like bureaucracy and they're, they're going to get kind of paid regardless. They're not judged by the market. It's judged by whoever is in charge of that program. If they, if they continue to give out those benefits and they're, they're, they're going to have a job. So their, their motive becomes very different than in a free market. In a free market, you have to satisfy your customers. In a bureaucracy, you just satisfy your boss. And ultimately that's just whoever is printing money. So you get a lot of that uh, sort of starting to grow as you have um, as you have uh, money printing available, as you have loans available, as you have uh, central banks uh, sort of churning out money for whatever reason, uh, and all of the free stuff that gets uh, sort of given out needs some management and so on. So, uh, so that that's kind of where where rent seeking starts, but it it definitely doesn't end there because. Oftentimes what happens is, uh, you know, the large companies that are in an economy like that uh, recognize the power of bureaucracy and, uh, and regulation. So uh, what, what they'll attempt to do because, uh, you know, politics is so easily malleable through lobbying and so on, they'll spend resources lobbying Congress uh, for one reason or another. Now, a popular one is to protect their turf. So that uh, a, a common one would be adding regulation to their industry. You, you're, uh, so to get into cars right now is extremely difficult, right? Like there are so many regulations around how a, an automobile has to uh, function and fuel economy standards and safety standards and like what what degree what kind of steel you can use and all this other stuff um, that you know most automobiles these days look pretty much the same right I, I saw mm-hmm. a picture of like the 50 different uh, cars all in white they look almost all exactly the same from like you know, 12 different uh, car manufacturers and so on. It's it's because there's a lot of regulation around it. And if you try to introduce something too new, then it's probably not going to meet that regulation. Now, the purpose of that is to keep uh, newcomers out. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, the, the newcomers have a difficult time coming in and uh, having the capital to spend to uh, to meet all of those regulations. And uh, if you look at other countries which don't have these regulations, you find that they 
they've come up with all kinds of creative ways to like transport. Uh, if you've been to India, you I, I'm sure you know about tuk-tuks, right? Like mm-hmm. they're they could carry four people. They're not like the most luxurious ride in the world, but they're still motorized, right? And you can carry a lot of stuff. They're maybe a couple thousand dollars at the most, right? Probably significantly less than that. And you could have something like that. And in, in a market like the United States, I believe there would be a lot of people that would be willing to buy something like that. But that's mm-hmm. not allowed through regulation. It's a way to keep out the newcomers uh, and not allow sort of like new stuff to come in so that the current auto manufacturers can stay uh, you know, in their position in the economy. And it's not just auto manufacturers. It's pretty much everything. Uh, you know, I, how hard is it to open a bank in the United States right now? Mm-hmm. How difficult is that? Uh, or, you know, even, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, some sort of agricultural company or, you know, food processing company or anything like that. Almost all of, uh, if you look at almost every industry, that you you end up finding that there are like four or five giant companies that control everything. Uh, you know, five big ag companies, five meat processing plants, and you know, um, even like uh, the food that you find in your in the at the grocery store, like it's made by like maybe ten companies total, like the, all the stuff in the middle. Um, you know, four big accounting firms, and you know, six different banks, and every it's just you know these giant companies that have control over a whole bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, the, this myth that the U.S. is constantly innovating, it's, it's simply not true. Like there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs and they're, they're trying, but it is just so difficult to break into uh, the, the ranks of the powerful enough where you can, you can actually like uh, produce things at scale and profitably that, that you know, uh, it, and it, it's the result of... Um, you know, regulatory capture by these large companies and uh, the the rent seeking um, bureaucrats that that want to continue supporting a, a lot of these places because, in a sense, like you might not get bribed while you're a rent seeker, right? Like at the at, at like one of the three letter agencies or something, the FDA or something like that. But uh, but you know, after you know a career of ten years there, guess what? You get hired by a drug company. And now, you know, I mean, like in any other, if, if it was done in the other order, it would be just called bribery straight up. But, uh, but you know, that, that's, that's what it ends up being. It's because of the presence of rent seekers. But a lot of these large companies, in order to meet a lot of these regulations that they fight for as a way to uh, keep out a lot of uh, new players, they end up being rent seekers themselves within these companies. And this is where you get sort of very cringy, weird, you know, positions in a lot of uh, HR departments, right? Like where you have, you know, diversity coordinators and um, I, I don't know, like um, compliance personnel that, uh, that, that comply to particular things and you have to go take weird HR sexual harassment policy videos for like two days before you, you know, can start working or something like that. So it, th- this is all the cost of rent seeking of uh, of some uh, of getting some bureaucrats permission. You make me think about um, safety culture because what's the number one thing that all these regulators say? Oh, we have to keep people safe, right? And why do we have to keep people safe? We have to keep people safe because they'll sue. 
when people will sue because there's all this money to pay for torts and, and the money printer funds all of it. And you have this slow degradation of culture that's designed to keep us all safe when in fact it's just kind of neutering us in some pretty powerful ways. Yeah. And, and safety is, it is nice and it, it makes people think that it's going to be better because you're safe. But I, I would argue that that's, that's exactly how you start crumbling and start mm -hmm. uh, degrading as a civilization. Um, there's a, there's an interesting experiment from, uh, from, I think it was like late sixties or something. Uh, this was mouse universe or something like that. Uh, it, it, basically this researcher, uh, created an environment, uh, for mice to thrive. So he gave them all the food that they wanted and he created this very large room that, uh, mice could thrive in there. There's a lot of different places that you can go live and, and, uh, and thrive. So he gave them everything that they needed, right? And it was uh, no predators. It was, it was basically mouse utopia. And he observed what happened. So they thrive for a while. They multiply for a while. At a certain point, it became, uh, before it reached capacity, uh, he, noted, he started noticing that the mice were behaving normally, right? Uh, so a lot of females got hyper aggressive. A lot of males just sort of checked out. Um, and soon, like the population started declining, right? Uh, <laughs> the, the population started declining, and then ev eventually, the the uh, the entire colony just died out, mm. which is crazy because they had everything that they needed, yeah. no predators, nothing, but it it still died out. And one one of the one of the lessons that I think we can learn from that experiment is that. You need some struggle. <laughs> you can't have safety in everything. And, and in fact, like mice kind of need that like environmental pressure to thrive. And, and if you have nothing to push against, then you kind of get weird behavior. Uh, and it's it, it, like they, they don't act the way that normal mice should. And, you know, like there's a lot of analogies to current day. We, we see a lot of men checking out. There's like a whole MGTOW movement and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot, lot, a lot of men just refusing to have children or get married and stuff. And you, you, you have hyper aggressive women too, right? Like we're, we're seeing a lot of that, but that that's kind of what happens when you have too much safety is that uh, you, you, you don't have any frontiers anymore. You don't have any, anywhere to push. You don't have anything to strive for. And in a sense, like the mice lost purpose, I think as a society, we kind of lost purpose too, where it's just, you know, the, the thing that everyone's afraid of now is just death and that's it. And if, if you look historically, that's like not something most people were afraid of. In fact, it was like considered glorious to die in battle in a lot of these cultures and stuff. Uh, instead, we're, we're, you know, like COVID just sort of, Exposed the fact that so many people were so afraid of their mortality that that they they wouldn't go outside at all. Like they were living for nothing other than their own lives, and 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 those were the people that were most depressed, most sort of like cut off from everything. And uh, and th this is kind of what you get when you're when you're prioritizing safety. But you're right. Like what fiat money does is it says, all right, you have anxiety about this. I am going to relieve that anxiety through money. And uh, and you do that enough and you get kind of a society that's that's not building anymore. That's just concerned with living a little longer. And 
not at all about the next generation or the generation after and so it sort of makes me think of the meme hard times create strong men strong men create good times good times create weak men right all that yeah, that whole that whole thing and that's that's a little bit where we're at but i don't know that anyone i might have to make the meme myself i don't know that anyone's uh -huh. plugged the money printer into that like <laughs> you know, hard hard men to make uh make good times good time create money printer <laughs> money printer yeah. creates right I, I did see a meme like that i think uh, uh a few days ago but i i don't know it's like uh yeah money printer creates weak times weak times creates some money some money creates good times and yeah good times Perfect. create money printer or something like that but yeah it, it's this cycle of uh of you know, good times and bad versus sort of acting out of courage and fear. Um, and yeah, unfortunately that, that we're at the part of the cycle where we're acting out of fear and we're really headed towards bad times. Yeah. Well, and those rent seeking positions are mostly staffed by the weak men and the hyper aggressive women, right? Like <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that a lot of rent seeking positions are actually have a prestige in the economy, right? Like if yeah. you're uh, working uh, for a think tank in DC, right? Like that—that's considered very prestigious. Mm. Really, you're not doing anything. You're you're producing fancy-sounding reports for somebody, uh, and they they might APS or might not reports. Use it. Yeah, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. That they, it, but it's considered prestigious because you're doing relatively little amount of work. Uh, for a, a relatively lot of money, right? Like that 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 ratio is what people are looking at is how much work do I have to do to get a lot of money? And rent-seeking positions are fairly high in that regard. They, uh, you get remendous, uh, uh, you get uh, compensated very well for uh, the very little amount of work that you do. So when you have rent-seeking jobs available, everybody wants them. Not a surprise, right? Everybody wants them because... They can make a lot of money for very doing very little work. Who who doesn't want a job like that? Um, but this is the problem: uh, is first of all, there's not enough of those, so you get sort of uh, selection based on cronyism and so on. Uh, and and you know, worse, you get the best people in an economy going to those jobs. So investment banking is probably one of the worst in terms of rent seeking. You still have to work hard, but the rewards are enormous, right? You're making a hundred million dollars for, you know, uh, doing a few trades or something like that, or, uh, you, know, you know, writing some uh, Excel spreadsheets on like how, how to, uh, on the projections on what, what would happen if you followed a particular strategy. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, but the, that, that, ends up being very prestigious, very uh, desirable. And that's where people go. Um, and unfortunately, that's that means that all of the other stuff don't get the people that would be talented uh, at, at these other things. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I point out in the book that travel times uh, from New York to London have have gotten worse since the 1960s, right? Mm. And this is partly due to regulation, partly due to, you know, just sort of like the staticness of air aircraft design. And part of that is because there's really only two uh, commercial airline uh, manufacturers in the world right now. It's just Boeing and Airbus. And there are enough regulations in all of these countries that it, it, 
it's very unlikely that a newcomer will now be coming out and saying, oh, we're going to make planes too now. Like that, that's just not going to happen because it, it's too hard to break into that. But it used uh, the first Boeing 747 uh, from conception to rolling one off the assembly line and having it ready to fly was something like 20 months. Uh, the most recent one, 747 Max, took something like 10 years. Mm. Now, that that should tell you, okay, either we've like gotten so crazy with regulation that it takes that long, or we've lost a lot of talent in the air, uh, aerospace engineering field. And it's a little bit of both, but I suspect it's way more the second than the first. We used to have a lot of talent going into aerospace manufacturing, right? Like the uh, engineering and so on. We don't anymore because they've gotten into, um, you know, investment banking or, you know, Web3 startup or, you know, Silicon Valley thing or whatever. Um, you know, that, that, that's where the talented people are going. So rent seeking has like a significant cost in so many ways, not, not just in uh, sort of the value taken out uh, of everybody else through the actual taxation of uh, a lot of the transactions that we would normally engage in. But also the opportunity costs, uh, because the, these people in a sound money economy would probably be like nuclear engineers or aerospace engineers or, you know, uh, people creating better stuff uh, that that all of us could use and benefit from. Instead, they're you know sitting at a terminal executing an FX trade for some <laughs> for the benefit of their LPs, right? Like it's it's. Um, th this is what rent seeking does is, is it, uh, it degrades at multiple la layers and multiple levels. You know, a second ago, I made a joke about TPS reports from the movie uh, office space, mm -hmm. but you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think that movie came out in like 99, something like mm -hmm. that. And, and that movie, the matrix and fight club all came out the same year. And I, now that, now that I, I listen to you talk about this, there's a way in which, and all three of those movies feature guys in soulless corporate jobs, essentially rent-seeking, longing for a life of a more direct experience of reality. Like you have the office space guy, what does he end up doing? He ends up working in construction, right? <laughs> like digging a ditch, but providing value. Neo ends up, you know, being the savior of humanity or, or whatever in some technological sense. But then you have Fight Club, he ends up being like some sort of revolutionary, but he still wants a more immediate sense and I remember reading the book. That was the sense that I got that I, I, I had been cultivated my whole life to have a rent-seeking kind of job. And that was, I think, what the boomers kind of expected their kids to do because they, <laughs> I mean, because they saw the money. They didn't know that it was the money printer, but they saw the thing switch on with all this profitability and, and prosperity in the 80s, like get close to where the money is as opposed to engage with reality and create value. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you, you bring up a good point about like sort of the soullessness of, uh, of rent seeking. And, uh, you know, if you know anybody in investment banking, ask them what they do on Friday, <laughs> ask them what they do on Friday and Saturday night. Like, uh, th this is an industry that probably has the most alcohol abuse and the most drug abuse yeah. anywhere. Right. Like they, they now, why is that? It, it's, I think deep down, all of these people know that they're not really providing value, right? They, they know that really they're stealing from other people and that they have to drown out their conscience through drugs and other means to 
live with themselves. And it's unfortunate, but that that's the case in a lot of industries now, right? Um, you mentioned office space. A lot of office workers are like, am I making anything of a difference? Am I, am I doing anything? Um, and especially if your company is not profitable at all, there's like pr prima facie evidence that you aren't providing any value because you're losing money, right? Like you're, you're consuming resources. Um, and and the, that that's so common today that I think uh, there there's a lot of other things that are there to just sort of numb us out to that. Uh, I think a lot of entertainment is like that. A lot of video games. Um, a lot of uh, yeah. I mean, even down to you know CrossFit or whatever. People use those things as a way to distract themselves from sort of the utter lack of meaning that their jobs actually have. You know, oh, I'm I'm a divorce lawyer. I do this. Mm. I, are you really making the world better in any way, or are you just a giant rent seeker that you know uh, benefits from the disunion of marriage marriages? Right, like, like, like. Yeah, a lot of people I think are 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 very depressed as a result of that, and you know we we tend to think that like or we've been told this lie that depression is a result of like some chemical imbalance or whatever. And if you study any of that, you know they're realizing that's probably not it, uh, even though they've made all the all this medication based on that or whatever. It, I I think it's really that okay. You're not providing value. How should you feel about it? Like, ultimately, if you're if you're not providing value, well, like you should kind of be depressed. Yeah, you're 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 detracting from humanity. Um, you're there. There should be a part of your conscience that's speaking up and saying, like, this is not right. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people medicate that instead of trying to listen to it. Um, and you know, like part of what's great about all three movies is that they're all kind of fantasies, right? It's it's a way to break out of uh, of these rent seeking things because it, it is so unsatisfactory. Uh, but you know, if if you are providing value, I think it's it's not like that at all. You're you're you recognize that you are providing value, and you have motivation to go and do a lot of that stuff. Uh, it, it's it's sort of all connected together, all of the ills of society that you're seeing. Uh, and it comes down to ultimately the fact that, you know, you're not providing value and that's motivated by the incentives of fiat money. Let's unpack the term providing value for men, just mm -hmm. to, just to make it very, very basic. Cause I think it's important. I think a lot of men have the sense that they're not doing this thing, describing it, described as providing value, but what does that mean in actuality? Yeah. So, um, in any economy, you have lots of trades, right? Um, you, uh, I, I give you some money and you give me something. Now, when those trades take place, both people are benefiting. I find the thing that you're providing, whether it's a good or service, more valuable than the money I'm parting with. And, uh, and you know, it, it could be the opposite. I'm the one providing a good or, uh, good or service and you're paying me money. But that's uh, that's the essence of the trade, and and the nice thing about a trade is that both parties, at least subjectively, are feeling good about that trade. This is where you're getting value. Uh, so if I'm a cobbler and I have a lot a lot of shoes, I I mean I'm not going to use more than like three pairs of shoes, right? Like, but I'm a cobbler, so I make like a hundred. The hundredth pair of shoes like are 
more, more or less not worth anything to me because I, I have plenty of shoes. But for you, if it's your first, second, third, fourth pair of shoes, you're very willing to go pay me some money for that. So we both benefit in that trade. You're adding value to me because I'm getting rid of something that I don't want for something that I do want. And you're benefiting from the trade because you're you're getting something that you want for something that you don't want, right? Like you 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 have sort of like uh, you're getting more value relatively from that. Uh, so so that's that's ultimately what uh, what providing value is. It's just participating in voluntary trades with other people. Now, to get people to trade with you, you have to give them something that they want. And that's not to say that every desire people have is something that should be met with, you know, I mean, like, I'm sure there's, a, uh, you know, a market for uh, child porn or whatever, but that's not a good thing to engage in, right? Like, that's not something, among other things, it's illegal. But but that that's not something that you should necessarily be providing. Um, the the thing that you want to provide that adds value is actually like makes their life better in some way. And I think the, a large portion of things uh, do that. Uh, unfortunately, we also have that other side of stuff, which is, uh, you know, basically numbing out uh, the, uh, the, the conscience or something like that. I, I don't think that's necessarily value additive, um, but that, that's, that gets a little more subjective, but from, a more um, classical way of uh, thinking about value in terms of economics is, you know, you we we do a trade and you do lots of trades. That's that's how you add value. Um, unfortunately, you you have like salary positions and stuff like that where it's not at all clear what you're trading and what you're getting and whether both parties are really like making that decision like logically, uh, because if a company hires you, right, like, and it's based on a salary over a year, they're sort of guessing that maybe you can provide at least that much value, but they have no idea. And there are so many companies that would love to fire like half their people, like, you know, uh, I mentioned before with the management consultants, but they can't because there's like all sorts of legal liabilities and things like that. And they, they, uh, they, they can't. Uh, so you, you have, um, you have weird incentives there. And I, I, I think once fiat money enters the equation, a lot of these trades don't add value. Uh, but this is the, that's how I would define it. Like in a free market, if you're trading a good or service for money and back and forth, you're providing value in some way. So men are trapped in this kind of, well, many of us are trapped in this kind of fiat universe, this fiat world full of zombie, hyper-regulated companies, you know, in, engaging yeah. in economic transactions for a time where we're not adding any value and that makes us depressed and alcoholic and numb, numbing out with entertainment. And it's, I mean, it, it's all because of the money printer. Yeah, I would say so. And uh, like, you're you're not really... Uh, making anything better for anybody. And I, I think ultimately what men want is to be useful, right? Like to, yeah. to people. And, uh, and unfortunately, like uh, a lot of these giant corporations, it is not at all clear if you're adding value or subtracting value, whether you're a rent seeker or somebody that's actually like part of a team that's, uh, that's doing something good. Um, vast majority of them, I, I think, are subtracting value. Like you're, you're you you have so many rent seekers in a lot of these bureaucratic positions, 
And, you know, a lot of these large companies see the employees more as an asset because they have political power uh, as a result of that. So uh, I don't know if you remember in 2008 when GM went bankrupt, uh, part of the reason why they got bailed out was because of the United Auto Workers. There were so many employees that, you know, like, it was politically expedient for the government to bail them out. And so they did. So, um, you know, that, that, that's part of the calculus for a lot of these companies. They don't really want you for you. <laughs> they want you for sort of your political power and things like that. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I, like it, it, that's, that's not what you are, right? Like you want to be useful for the skills that you bring to the table for the goods or services that you provide to others. And I, I think for pe- uh, like a lot of small business owners, that's actually one of the things that's very nice is you are providing a good or service directly to per- uh, customers, and they're getting something they're paying you, right? Like that that's that's a wonderful thing, uh, and it's it's very satisfactory. Um, unfortunately, we've gotten away from that where we don't know our customer, right? It's some faceless corporate entity or faceless bureaucracy or something like that, that, that employs us instead of, you know, like actual customers where we're, uh, so many people have one customer and they don't even know who the customer is. It's like a fictional corporate entity or government bureaucracy or something like that. It, it's not really a person. It's just, you know, I mean, there are people involved, but it's, it's, you know, at least technically speaking, it's not, not really a person. So yeah, it, it's uh, it's no wonder a lot of people are just uh, doubtful of their contribution and uh, kind of get stuck in rent seeking and so on. It would be kind of shocking for people to hear that the their giant corporation only employs them because having a high headcount makes them a political force that then the CEO or what other industry can leverage to get more money from the money printer. Like that's what you're doing there essentially. Yeah, I, that that and the fact that it's very difficult to fire you. <laughs> like a lot of <laughs> a lot of large companies, they're they're deathly afraid of getting a lawsuit, and it's actually cheaper for them to keep you on the payroll, unless you know they have like layoffs or something where it's uh, you know they could kind of do that with impunity. Like specifically, firing a per- particular person is extremely difficult um, in government or in a large company. Um, so you know you you get you get some weird dynamics there where people are kind of incentivized to do the bare minimum if they're not getting promoted, and a lot of people do do that. Um, but yeah, I, there there's a there's a lot of factors that go in. It's not just that you're politically uh, useful or something. Uh, there's there are other factors. I surely part of it is like how you contribute as an actual employee, right? If you're doing accounts receivable for an accounts, uh, you know, accounting department, you're, you're probably doing something, right? That That's valuable to the company. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, like maybe you're part of the DEI statistic where that mm. makes it look good for BlackRock so that they'll invest more money into your corporation or something. Um, and the, the, those are things that you're, maybe not ever going to know, maybe, uh, you know, like no one's ever going to admit it and say, you know, you were 20% higher because you're black and, you know, 10% higher because of this and 30% higher because of this. But I suspect that a significant percentage of why we're hired in a lot of these places is for the purposes of, uh, of satisfying some bureaucratic checkbox. 
Hi everyone. As you heard me say in the intro, I've just made my 100th cup of pour over coffee, and I thought it might be worthwhile to mark the milestone. How do I know I've passed that mark? Was I keeping count? <laughs> no, I can't count that high. I know because I used up a package of 100 paper coffee filters and had to open a new one. I thought that was pretty cool actually, sort of like a milestone. So what have I learned along the way? Well, a couple things. Obviously, I've learned the importance of having good equipment that I enjoy using. I've also developed a sense of mastery that gives me confidence that if I want to move on from the Hario V60 to a Chemex or AeroPress or something else, I'll know what I'm doing. I'm not just grinding up some beans and dumping hot water over them. I'm actually making a cup of coffee. And in that, I've learned something pretty stunning. Are you ready? It's really important to have good coffee beans if you want to have good coffee. Pretty wild, right? Because I haven't made 100 cups of Reformation coffee, I've actually tried other beans. And I'll tell you something, it's not the same. Now look, I could talk about the Reformation coffee intangibles that Brandon is a pastor, he's building into Christendom, supporting his family, and glorifying God one bag at a time. And those are important. But knowing that he hand roasts fresh coffee for me on demand means that I'll get something I cannot get anywhere else. When I order his Guatemala, Ethiopia, India, or Brazil roast from ReformationCoffee.com, my coffee is roasted within three days of my order and shipped right away. Meanwhile, I have no idea how long that other bag of coffee has been sitting on the shelf at the grocery store or even the local coffee shop. With my more sophisticated brewing methods, I can taste the difference. The flavors are brighter, bolder, and consciously chosen by a good man who has forgotten more about coffee than I'll ever know which also makes the experience personal. So let's recap. By ordering Reformation coffee, you're getting all of their Christian intangibles, plus fresh roasted beans, handcrafted not by a corporation, but by a brother in faith and a coffee artisan. I think that tastes pretty good. Take that, Starbucks. Head over to ReformationCoffee.com right now and start your coffee journey with Reformation. And when you sign up for a coffee subscription, use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. Once again, head over to ReformationCoffee.com and when you sign up for a regular coffee subscription, use the code SUBFREE to get a free bag. And thanks for coming along with me on my coffee journey. I'm 100 cups in, with many more ahead. Happy sipping, friends. So as you were looking at the other areas that you saw that Fiat ruins, what were some of your favorites to research and write about? Because I could start, I mean, you have about 30 or 40 chapters of it. <laughs> so, I mean, I would love to, I really genuinely like to go into each one, but like, let's pick out some of your favorites that you found, uh, we'll say enjoyable in the broad, in the broadest I, sense. I, I, I think I triggered a lot of people with the art chapter. So that, that yeah, was a pretty fun one. I love, uh, let's go with that one. I wanted to ask you about that one. I enjoyed that okay. chapter, frankly. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I I had another podcast where uh, where I talked about it, this and death, but uh, you know, the, like it was a little bit surprising to me that that was the most controversial chapter because like pretty much like every everything else it was like, oh yeah, that's true, that's true. Art, what? No, <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I, like in a way, it's it's the most sort of like a soft authoritative thing that we're under is the, is the art thing. Uh, yeah, like you complain about education or science, people kind of know, yeah, yeah, it's screwed up. Yeah. Like it's objectively obvious that those are screwed up. But you you start talking about art and they're like, oh, it's completely subjective, right? You don't know what you're <laughs> talking about, blah, blah, blah. No, like, really? It's really subjective. Then why are you telling me that I don't, I, I shouldn't have this opinion, right? Like, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I I think part of it is that 
you know, art uh, has been sort of like we we've been gaslit into thinking that bad art is good good art, right? Like this is something that's kind of taught, uh, you know, all day long and. Uh, K through 12 and every museum, modern art museum, at least like celebrates these like very obscure, weird pieces of abstractness. Um, and, uh, and a lot of artists, especially like, you know, they're, they're sort of like the cultural experts, I guess. Um, they are very afraid to criticize any other art. Um, and that ends up making it so that, uh, like when we have other opinions, uh, you know, they, they make us sound like country bumpkins or something that mm -hmm. don't know anything. Uh, and, uh, and I, I think honestly, a lot of artists are very sensitive to criticism as well. And if you criticize any art, they feel like you're criticizing them. It's, it's a, it's a weird dynamic. Uh, but I I've seen this with a lot of artists where they, they take offense on part of, you know, like not even necessarily something that they like. Uh, of course, if they like Picasso, then they're going to be very offended at what I'm saying. But even if they're not big fans of Picasso, they still get offended by like how I analyze it. Well, one of the end notes uh, in the book said that Picasso produced like 50,000 pieces of art. <laughs> I saw that after I read the book. I was like, that makes it all make sense. Like art is, yeah. art is industry, right? Yeah, well, at least for Picasso, because the only thing that mattered for him was his signature. You could, he could put a signature on anything and it would suddenly be worth a lot of money. And th this is sort of like the subtle shift that art has taken as a result of fiat money. It's no longer about the art, it's about the artist, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's because it's no longer about the end product, it's about the endorsement, <laughs> Which, uh, which unfortunately is very common in any status or uh, political game is that you want endorsements from like the people that are high up. And that, that's sort of like a way of uh, showing off your status. Um, and, and that's what art has become. It used to be about, you know, beauty and, you know, sort of the art itself and how, how it impacts the person looking at it or experiencing it in some way. Uh, but that that's no Gross longer the second. case because it's become about the endorsement of this popular, famous person. It doesn't really matter how they got popular or famous. I'm not sure if you could. It's just that they're already at the top of this status hierarchy and getting their endorsement is really the, the act of buying the art now. It, it's, it's not at all about the merits of the piece. It's about the endorsement that that uh, or your association with that person it's 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 part of that that political game so um that that is i think maybe why it's so offensive to a lot of people because they don't want to admit that it is a status game that it is um based not on any kind of reality but on sort of almost a nietzschean will to power uh dynamic um and whoever gets to the top, it doesn't matter what they got there with or how they got there, they matter because they're at the top, right? Like that's, that's sort of the attitude of uh, most art people. Um, and they, they want to be at uh, there too, if they're an artist uh, and they're like working hard towards getting up that thing. And as soon as you reject that whole hierarchy, they want to reject you because they don't like that. Uh, you don't subscribe to the, you know, status game that 
art has. So yeah, it, it's a it's a weird uh, dynamic, and uh, you know, I I think the the way that fiat money sort of like enters into this is uh, first of all there there's a lot of store of value premium put into art because it's actually scarce especially after the artist dies right so mm. there's a it's nowhere good to store the money so people need to go find a good store of value and there are very few good stores of value so one of the things that's actually scarce is art that's uh, uh especially of a dead artist but there's not nearly enough of those to go around uh so you end up having modern art that sort of takes its place. Um, and that becomes its own sort of like um, status game or like it's it's kind of like altcoin trading, you know, what's going to be popular, what's not going to be popular. Um, something like 80% of all art uh, that's sold at Sotheby's, um, you know, which is like the mm -hmm. most premier art auction, they don't get sold again. <laughs> which is crazy but you know so it's like this weird risk game where you you try to buy the 20 percent that's going to sell again and then uh you know invest in that and then that's like many multiples in a few years when it's sold again because it became popular it's it's a very weird and strange dynamic so that that's part of it there there's a there's a stat inherent status game that goes into it because of the presence of fiat money because of all the store of value premium that's going into it. And people sort of have to compete and do research and uh, waste a lot of time uh, on this stuff because there is no good place to store their money. Instead of creating goods and services, they're playing weird status games with the art that they own to try to make it more popular or whatever. So that that's that's a part of it. Uh, but the other one is that it's... Uh, what what fiat money does is it creates all of these experts and authorities um, instead of having people that are able to sort of like see it for themselves. Uh, and, you know, part of it is that we do have communication mediums and, you know, uh, educational institutions and, uh, you know, experts, uh, more or less, in a lot of this stuff. And, the people that are at the top get to decide what's what's good, um, and uh, and those are obviously great rent-seeking positions if you could get them because you're going to get invited to every party and you know be paid a lot of money to endorse this or that because you you have a lot of power you have the ability to create new artists that are going to be popular and so on so uh, that uh, that dynamic uh, means that everybody sort of falls in line with the current orthodoxy of art and you get weird stuff um, not uh, becoming popular, not, not through merit, but through politics and status games. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I write about. I'm like, you know, I, 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 I criticize modern art for a lot of things among others um, that they're producing a lot of it and, uh, you know, within very short time frames, and it's all proof of stake and not proof of work. Um, and I contrast it to um, something, uh, you know, Michelangelo's La Pieta, right? That, that mm -hmm. took a few years to make. Uh, and uh, and he only carved his name on it after he uh, after it was uh, it was created uh, because he uh, somebody mistook it, and he always regretted it for the rest of his life. 
like art should speak for itself. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but now it's, uh, it's all about the artist and not the art itself. Yeah. He like Michelangelo, like snuck in or broke into the owner's house or something like that to carve his name into it. Yeah. Uh, he, he, I think it was at the St. Peter's even then, or, uh, or actually no, it, it was, it was at a church and he, he just like went in That's and it. carved it that night, something like that. Uh, but I mean, it, he's not the only one. Like you, you go to a lot of these churches in Rome. None of none of those statues have any any signatures on them. The idea is that the statues themselves are beautiful, and you're supposed to appreciate it not because some artist made it, but because of what it is, right? Like what it represents and how it emotionally moves you, and so on. And a lot of art now is nothing like that. It is all about branding based on who made it. Uh, and if you don't know who made it, oh, you Philistine, you heathen, you know, how, how, how dare you, you know, think about art without like the artist or something like that. And, you know, their weird backstory or whatever. And like the meaning has to be derived from like 50 different, you know, details or something. It, it's, it's just all a very weird um, uh, you know, esoteric game that people at the top play, and um, you know, I don't, I, I don't like it, and I think it's been very bad for art in general. So it's it's interesting that people really reacted strongly to that chapter when you include elsewhere in the book Fiat Debase's <laughs> relationships, Fiat Debase's families, you know, Fiat Debase's marriage, <laughs> right? Yeah. Fiat undermines work. That people of all the things. That they would that they would pick on that they would pick on art art. I found that to be a very uh, revealing chapter because it helped articulate a bunch of things that I had been feeling but couldn't quite say why. But the, to make the moral case that fiat currency has debased this entire world of representational art and made it abstract and on the artist as opposed to the merits of the work itself, it's like mm -hmm. oh that's that's why I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Uh, Perhaps the reason why people are so offended at that chapter is because they like modern. You know, that might be the they, yeah. like most of this other stuff. They they recognize the problems around family relationships, work, or education, or science, or whatever. But art, it's like, oh, I like art, or I, I have a friend that's an artist, and you know, like you're you're like dumping on, dunking on him or whatever. I, I I suspect that's why. But also, artists have this fraternity where they they really don't like criticism of themselves or their friends something like that um i suspect that's a part of it but i mean like the if i were to write that chapter again i think i would end with something like uh you know under a bitcoin standard um i think it changes not just because you have art that's more representational more clearly beautiful more proof of work but i think you get the patronage system that we've had for a long time and mm. the the um, requirements for a patronage system are somebody that is very talented, obviously, so somebody like a Mike, Michelangelo or Da Vinci or whatever, somebody that is very rich, that has a lot of resources, but that person also has to be able to recognize what is good art and, and talent, right? Like the ability to create art. Uh, we don't really have that part. We have lots of rich people. We have lots of artists. But what we don't have is any rich people that recognize talent because right. <laughs> like it, it's, it's, like, it's all subjective. It's all arbitrary. So it's, uh, 
It's more about figuring out what might become popular later, and that's uh, that's based on the tastemakers and so on. Uh, instead, about uh, you know, like the, I, I I think Bernini was um, uh, you know there there was a patron that paid for everything, like recognized Bernini's uh, talent very early at the age of twenty one or something like that, and started saying, okay, just just produce statues for me. Here here's you know I'm going to fund everything. And I, I would say that to to artists like that's the way you want to make make your mm -hmm. living is having patrons and being able to create instead of having everything be so commercial as it is now, where you know your work has to sell, or else you're going to go hungry. And in order for your work to sell, you have to have a gallery showing. And if you're going to have a gallery showing, then you're going to have to get in good with the gallery owner or an art critic or somebody. You have to play all of these political games instead of doing the actual work of creating. And in a sense, you 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 have to do all of this other stuff instead of the thing that you're most passionate about, the the thing that uh, that makes you an artist. Um, and unfortunately, it's uh, it's the people that are really good at that political game that end up being popular, right? Like Andy Warhol, people like that. Like they, they're very good at promoting themselves. I, I, I was reading in another book how it's like, yeah, I actually can't really draw everything <laughs> else. And uh, he, he hires like eight, he hired like 18 art students right out of like uh, one of these art schools. And he conceptualizes something and has them do the, the do the actual work. Oh. Like, like what the, and, and, a lot of famous artists are kind of like that now, where they they have a whole stable of people doing the actual work. They're, they they do most of the promotion and talking about it and getting in good with the right people. It's become an entire political game, and that's uh, that's not the right system, I think, to produce good art, to uh, create art that's going to last for generations and so on. Um, if, if you want that to happen, I think you need patrons, you need people that are able to recognize talent, but you know, no no one. Very few people actually recognize talent at all right now because you know it's it's all based on status games and it's uh, it's not about talent it's about your political skills so um, you know going to a more uh, uh, sound money standard I think brings all of that back because you know once you have a rich person that says I I want to see more beauty and th this person can produce it I'm going to fund this person. Yeah, that's that's how I think a lot of really great art happens. So I want to talk about the Bitcoin standard and how sound money fixes a lot of these things. But the two more topics I want to cover first are families and marriage. And I did want to say real quick, I think Banksy is a good example of an artist. Like no one knows who Banksy is, but I always thought Banksy was like one person who was orchestrating a team of uh -huh. people in the way that uh -huh. you kind of articulated. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and. Part of it, like there, there are certain techniques that he used to catch the attention of the art critics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there's actually a cool YouTube video that you can go watch about this guy that learned some of the techniques that Banksy used and managed to get his own show and sold like a million dollars worth of stuff um, after like three months. Just oh wow, like the like the it, it's very systematized and it's very purposeful. Um, and it's it's a way to climb up that that status ladder because you know at, at least in the art world it, if they pay attention to you at all then like the game is over um, but like the way that uh, they suppress the things that they don't like is they 
pay no attention to you, give you no space, uh, mm -hmm. no, no, no oxygen at all. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's one of the weird things about the art world. And I, I think it's, you know, because you have these Cantillon insiders that are, uh, that are able to print their own money by, um, you know, saying that this is now hot and, you know, they, they got a donation of like 10 of the, that artist paintings right before they said that, right? Like that, that sort of stuff happens. All <laughs> like pre-mining. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk quickly about um, how Fiat debases marriage and family and relationships. Mm -hmm. Cause I think, yeah, art is controversial, but I think this is a much more fundamental topic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's unfortunate, but like a lot of people are now very dependent on the state. As we talked about before, one of the things that the government can do when they, uh, uh, when they're able to do this stealth taxation through inflation is promise you a lot of free stuff. So, uh, you know, our relationships have been debased because that's uh, what, what we used to depend on has, is no longer really what we're depending on anymore. We're depending instead on government. So it used to be that you had an extended family, and if you lost your job or something, the the people in your family would help you out. If you got sick or something, the people and you didn't have money to pay for a doctor, people in your family would help you out. Uh, if both your your parents were killed, you know you your your you would be adopted by your family in some way, shape, or form, and be raised up that way. The the safety net was your family, uh, and that that was the normal way of being, and that that was the normal sort of social group that you identified most with. Um, it's no longer that way. I think most people identify way more with the companies that they work for mm -hmm. than their family now. Uh, but more more than that, you have all of these safety nets. You have stuff like health insurance and unemployment insurance and, uh, you know, Medicare and, um, you know, uh, life insurance or whatever. You have all of these financial products that are sort of stand-ins for the relationships that used to be the reason why you, you didn't have to worry as much about those things. And, uh, and as a result, people are less dependent on each other. So they're less uh, connected to each other, and you you have worse communities as a result. The quality of relationship is not one of dependence. It's it's just almost purely to you know, have fun or something, right? Like to uh, be social or or something like that. Uh, and that that's debased it because you, you need some of that dependence to make it make it real, to to make it cost something, to have some proof of work in there. Um, but more than that, uh, because all, all of these uh, things exist to sort of like be your safety net, uh, people are less incentivized to have kids because kids were ultimately the the thing that took care of you when you were old. We, we didn't have Social Security or Medicare or anything like that uh, before, say, the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, families took care of each other and you you had kids because they were sort of the equivalent of social security, right? Like, or social security is just sort of like a very debased form of having children or uh, Medicare is a very debased form of having children. They, they were supposed to take care of you. That was, that was, that was the idea. Um, but, uh, but instead of like relationships with your kids, now you have like this relationship with your government, a faceless entity that, you know, sort of 
takes your money and promises to give it back to you. And it's uh, it's based on all on, uh, you know, a sort of a broken bankrupt system anyway. So, of course, like people are a little less satisfied with that. But because they're less incentivized to have children, they have fewer of them. But uh, even more than that, we're, we're, we've been getting stolen from and we've been getting poorer. Now, that's kind of a controversial statement because, you know, like the stuff that we have now with like an iPad or something like that, you know, like even Rockefeller, who was like the richest man in the world at one point, like having some significant percentage of the U.S. GDP, like he didn't have an iPad or anything like it, right? Like, and and that's... Uh, you know, in that sense, we we have stuff that people of old didn't, but we're also very poor. And the reason I say that is if you think about, say, like 30 or 40 years ago, at least when I was growing up, my dad worked, my mom stayed at home. Now, that's not something that most people can say now, right? Both yeah. parents work. I mean, there there's like women's liberation and stuff like that, but it, that's not the reason why both parents work. Most Most of the time, both parents work because they need to. They, they need to make their ends meet, right? Like they, they've just gotten poor. Also look at the housing, right? Like, uh, you know, at, at least my parents were able to buy a house and, you know, uh, it was reasonably priced or whatever. You know, if you're, if you're starting out right now, there is no way you could buy a house, right? Uh, you've gotten poorer, right? Think about the cars, right? That, that you're able to drive. I, I mean, if you are able to drive, uh, buy one, you know, it's, it's, it's nice, but it costs a lot, a lot more money than it used to. Uh, we've gotten poorer, uh, and that means that we don't have the resources to put into children. So, uh, if you want to have like four kids, you're going to need um, need a lot of money to raise them, yeah. and we're not getting paid enough for that. You're also going to need a bigger house and. You need to pay for that, and that like people just can't afford it. So, in a sense, um, all of that sort of like safety net that you get, it comes at a cost because it 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 has to fund all of those rent seekers in the middle, and that means everyone else uh, that's productive has to work that much more, and so you get lesser birth rates pretty much everywhere where. Um, the fiat system has taken away so much of the wealth or has taxed so much of your productivity that uh, that you you don't have anything left over to go and you know, have kids or whatever. Uh, I, I was looking at the statistics that I saw on Twitter today. I, I think other than like three or four countries, at least in that list of like 50 or so, uh, and one of them was like Kyrgyzstan and one was like Uzbekistan. All of the birth rates are under two, which is crazy. Yeah. Less than two children per woman. Uh, it, it's getting to the point where, um, you know, we're, we're funding the old people at the cost of the young. Um, you know, it's just not going to be able to be paid for. Um and it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, it used to be that children were additive to a family, right? I, even now, like if you if you have a relative uh, or a brother or sister that's a doctor and you have a medical problem, who's the first person you call? Mm -hmm. right? Like that's it's it's so obvious that they add value in that way. It was much more so uh, in the past when families were closer. It, it would be okay. 
let's, you know, I, I, I need to expand my business. Where can I find like a, a, a trusted person that can work for me? You, you would go to your extended family and try to hire somebody from there, right? Like that, that was the way it, it was a, it was a value add to add to your family and marriage. Think about what marriage was. It, it was bringing two families together. You, your network got double the size, right? Like that, that was, that was a boon to everybody on both sides, right? Even, even if it's like, uh, you know, a little bit of a tangential connection where it's like a, you know, cousin-in-law or something like that. It was, it was useful because now, now, okay, I can hire that person or I can go to them for goods and services and there's a relationship there and, you know, there's not as much of a need for trust or something like that because, you know, the, the trust is implicit in the relationships that existed. Uh, a lot of that has gone away and it's been substituted with a sort of like very faceless uh, trusted third parties that are authorities over you, despite whatever, uh, and they tell you what to believe and what to think, and it's uh, it, it's taken over instead of family having its rightful role. I think that's going to be very relevant. I mean, this, these are these are things that a lot of the men that I know really struggle with is is how expensive everything is, children, homes, etc. How am I going to up my income enough to provide for a family? How am I going to save? You know, men are really feeling, especially in, in, a, in a, a, an economy where the bias is also clearly towards women. So economically as well, in terms of promotions, I hear that a lot from men in corporate environments that all things being equal, that a woman's going to get the promotion over a man. And so men are really feeling, and so they, they opt into the trades, but in many cases, the trades also provide like a lower a lower income ceiling, right? Like how many, like can a, how much can a plumber reasonably earn in a day? It's, 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 you know, righteous work, it's noble work, but you're not going to earn as much as you can in like a rent seeking position, for example. And so men are really feeling all these things. And it was, it was your book that helped me put all these pieces together. Yeah. It's interesting though, as the interest rates rise and you get more reality coming into um, sort of slap these uh, corporations around a little bit. Um, the thing a higher rate, uh, higher interest rate environment does is that it reduces the money printing, right? Like uh, all money printing happens through debt. So it, it happens through loans. The lower the interest rate is, the more the monetary expansion is, the higher the rate is, the less monetary expansion is. In fact, we're kind of getting a monetary contraction. The M2 is coming down for the first time in a long time, hmm. in part because the interest rates are so high. So another way to sort of look at that is that real reality is uh, sort of reasserting itself. Fiat money lets you suspend reality by printing lots of it by stealing from everybody else. And it lets you sort of uh, have lots of rent seekers and stuff like that and pay them very well. But that can only go on so long. Uh, at, at a certain point, uh, as rates go up, reality is re reasserting itself. And what we're seeing is that a lot of these trades, a lot of these uh you know, manual work, the noble work, the actual productive work, the things that are uh, adding value to the economy and so on. Those are the jobs that are getting the raises, which is very interesting. So uh, I, I'm sure you saw with the UPS uh, settlement, uh, the uh, UPS driver, uh, the average UPS driver, I think with all the benefits included, make $170,000 a year. <laughs> right? And I think they business. deserve I, yeah. I think they deserve every penny because sure. if you think about it, what happened was 
with uh, with a company like Twitter, you had you know a bunch of staff that was doing political stuff, right? Like yeah. stuff that wasn't adding any value to the company. Elon got rot- rid of like ninety percent of them. How much money were they making? Probably like because it's San Francisco, oh, yeah. 250, 300, 450, whatever. Yeah, like that money is being redirected to the like ultimately to the UPS driver. And I, I think that's more, more just because a UPS driver is actually providing value. A plumber is actually providing value. A welder is actually providing value. Truck drivers are actually providing value. And in a sense, I think that that's where this all is leading. And I said before that rent-seeking positions tend to have a higher status in a fiat economy because it, it looks really prestigious because a lot of people want it. And to get selected to do it, you either have to be uh, be like extraordinarily um, well qualified, or you know you're a crony or something like that. Um, so people desire it, and they tend to have a lot of status. But you know, as as you go away from a fiat system to a more sound money system, I think a lot of these other things that actually provide value go up in status because the rent seeking jobs kind of disappear, and they they become kind of known as uh, jobs that like don't provide any value. We we get reality reasserting itself. So, in a sense, uh, like I I I want the men that are listening to your podcast to understand that really providing value, adding value. If you if you focus on that, you should be okay because uh, the the fiat system, the rent seeking system, the Cantillon winning system is destined to end at some point. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen, but as that ends, you're going to be best positioned if you are not one of those rent seekers. So, uh, you know, if you're, for example, uh, a bank vice president or something like that, like, I don't know, they have like uh, 200 vice presidents for every branch or something, right? I, I don't even know. Uh, and, and you try to get a job after that, you're, you're not going to get hired by anybody but a big bank. Right, and there's only so many of those jobs, and there there's uh, a, a very small number of people that can get those jobs. So, yeah, it, it is kind of like a zero sum game. If a woman makes it ahead of you, then you're not going to get that job, and so on. Instead of relying on that on your political skill, rely on the value that you can add. So, if you are working in a trade or something like that, and you're a better plumber, you're going to win because there's an objective standard and a, not a political. Uh, and and that's that's where we lead as you go away from a fiat standard to a sound money standard like Bitcoin is you you get reality re- reasserting itself and merit is rewarded. So I would encourage the people that are listening to the show to really find something that you're good at and get really good at it and provide value that way. Right. Like uh, in, in whatever it is that you're good at. Maybe you are a good plumber. And if you're an extraordinary plumber, you're going to get paid. It's just a matter of time. Uh, but if you're if you're uh, if you're a really good political player, well, good luck with that. Like uh, th- those only work in giant corporations. And, you know, uh, like most a lot of those don't make any money. They're all zombie companies anyway. So you know, when they collapse, where are you going to go? You're going to have to go learn something that provides value to the economy anyway. And it'll be better for your soul because ultimately you're providing value to people. You're making them things better for them. And they're they're happy to hand you some money to solve a problem that they have. And that that's that that that's the trade that 
we want uh, is value providing stuff. And honestly, uh, like, you know, the, the trades seem like very undervalued right now uh, because uh, like part, part of it is because of the dollar hegemony and so on, where a large part of the United States work in some sort of rent seeking position. Uh, but the few people that are actually producing, um, you know, like they're, they're very hard to find, you, you know, have you, have you tried to hire a contractor to do something for your house or whatever? Mm. It's actually very difficult. Uh, you know, because, and, and they have like lots and lots of work. They could charge lots and lots of money, um, because of the inflation that's happening and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, I think that that's that noble work is going to also pay, um, in the future. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, skate to where the puck is going, not where the puck is. Yes. And if, if you have just, just a, um, another minute or two, just plug the last piece of, of, of Bitcoin into this, you know, men providing value, exiting the fiat system. What does Bitcoin have to do with all of this? Yeah. So Bitcoin is sound money and it is, uh, is money that cannot get debased. And if you have Bitcoin, if you have one Bitcoin right now, you have one twenty-one millionth of all the Bitcoin that will ever exist always and forever. And that, and it's not controlled by anybody. It's decentralized and it's what we call sound money. And it is the very opposite of fiat money, which has a central controller that can print money whenever they want and, uh, you know, change the monetary policy or whatever. And that that's what essentially controls the economy today. Uh, with Bitcoin, you have sound money. It's it's based on uh, it's a decentralized system, so no one controls it. Uh, and that uh, a system based on Bitcoin cures a lot of the ills of the fiat monetary system because there's no money printing. And and that's what I point out in the book is that in a sense uh, we're we're beset uh, by. Uh, all of the fiat shenanigans in our lives, but you get rid of uh, you get rid of fiat money by having sound money, uh, and Bitcoin is that sound money. And uh, and you know, uh, gold was sound money for a while, but you know, we now have paper gold, and you know, there's lots of problems with gold. Uh, but with Bitcoin, we have something better, and it's digital, and it's verifiable, and so on, which makes it a lot easier. Uh, to store your value, to uh, to work in a real economy instead of like a um, sort of like a reality suspended one, which which is essentially the fiat economy. Well, thank you so much for all that. I've had a number of um, of Bitcoin thinkers on Laser Hodl, Svetsky, Tomer Strolight, and and I really appreciated uh, I really appreciated how your book and your perspective made the moral case for Bitcoin you know, I guess you might say societally, like the rot that we're seeing, the struggle that we're all experiencing is due to this money printer and Bitcoin fixes this, pun intended. So uh, I really, but you didn't, you you didn't make that case throughout the entire book. You was like, here, let me just paint the picture for you of why things are the way they are. And there is actually a solution to all of these problems that all go back, they all point back to the same root. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like I said at the beginning, um, uh, you're by, by moving to Bitcoin, it's, it's more removing the rod of fiat, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, you're removing sugar from your diet or something like that. It's, uh, it's, that's going to be way more beneficial than, uh, than the additional meat that you're eating or, you know, vitamins you're taking or whatever. It's getting rid of the poison is more important than 
you know, adding, adding anything new. Um, if you're a Christian, it's uh, removing of sin is more important than the adding of discipline. Let's put mm-hmm. it that yeah. Well, can can you speak about your your faith and how this plays into it as well? Because uh, I really appreciated that. I really appreciate the, your discussion to that at the end, the very brief discussion. Yeah, well, I uh, I wrote a whole other book on this. Uh, Thank God for Bitcoin, which you can go mm. and take a look at. I've read uh, that but, too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I make the case in that book about how Bitcoin is uh, is a much more biblically sound money or a biblical money, um, and I argue that. Fiat money is a corrupt money, and it is uh, everything that is the opposite of what God teaches uh, about sowing and reaping. Uh, you know, it, the entire fiat system is based on debt, so it's bringing consumption forward through debt and being enslaved. The biblical model is sowing and then reaping, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. saving up and then getting what you want at the end, instead of getting what you want and then being enslaved for however long, uh, which is the current fiat model. Um, I go through uh, uh, the the history of money and how it corrupts politics and churches and individual morals and so on. Uh, and you know, I, I present Bitcoin towards the end. There, uh, I, I don't think the word Bitcoin is mentioned until chapter eight, uh, and it's only to show that it's an alternative to fiat money. And uh, and yeah, we we wrote that uh, I think. Two and a half years ago, uh, and it's it's done really well. Um, had a really good reception by a lot of Christians, uh, who many of whom have told me like I never thought about money in this way, but it makes yep. a lot of sense. Um, and uh, even a lot of Bitcoiners that have read that and said, I, "I need to go back to church." These people are aligned with what I believe. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so it's it's uh, um, you know Christianity. Uh, Christ has been a big part of my life, and I've been a Christian since uh, when I was nine or ten. So. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's something that's more important to me than Bitcoin, uh, which, <laughs> right? You know how much I like Bitcoin. That that that's saying something. So, uh, so uh, yeah, it, it's something that I uh, I hope uh, more Christians understand. And uh, and you know, uh, just to give a quick plug, I uh, there's a Thank God for Bitcoin uh, Telegram group and a Thank God for Bitcoin. Um, uh, you know, organization that's run by one of my co-authors, uh, Jordan Bush, and he puts on conferences uh, to talk about this stuff. Um, there's a lot of missions work that he's working on to, um, you know, enable a lot of the transfer of funds and stuff like that to missionaries all over the world uh, and to fund some of these communities that are um, trying to uh, get out from underneath the tyranny of whatever government that they're under. So, um yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on in there, and there's a there's a fairly significant community. There's even a conference. So uh, if you're interested, please check out tgfb.com. Great. Yeah, I was at Thank God for Bitcoin and met Jared there back in I think yeah. it was April in in Florida. So yeah. you've set you've set his interview up perfectly, sir. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for your generosity of your time. Where would you like to send people to find out more about you and what you do and and your book as well? Yeah, so you can go to um, Twitter or X now. Uh, my username is Jimmy Song. Um, I have a newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com, that is mostly talking about technical stuff, but I also post some things I find interesting. And, you know, a, a lot of that is, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get a flavor of what I pay attention to in the world. And it's a, I, I promise you, it's not like 
any fluff piece about Biden or something like that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I also, if you're interested in the book, go to fiatruinseverything.com. You can buy a copy, a signed copy there. You can also go to Amazon and buy it directly there or buy with Bitcoin on bitcoinmagazine.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that. I'll be sending everyone everyone your way to uh, to learn about how fiat ruins everything. Fiat Delinda Est. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.